My guest on this week's episode of Sudden Search is Sean Rains, founder at Dealer Superhero. Sean is an industry veteran with over 20 years experience in sales, digital marketing, websites, PPC, SEO, social media, branding, management, leadership, and team building. He's an in-demand conference presenter. A few places you might've heard Sean present include NADA, Digital Dealer, Driving Sales, and many, many other places. This is the first time I've ever spoken to Sean, but I knew him by reputation. We have many friends in common and it didn't take long for me to find out why. Truth be told, this was one of the longest episodes we've ever filmed and we could have kept on going. I loved his point of view on business and genuinely caring for the people that we work with. I'll start our conversation talking about vendor accountability, but really what we'll talk about throughout the episode is ethics. What does it mean to be an ethical partner to your clients? What about to your employees? Why are there so many unscrupulous actors in the world of marketing? I'm going to ask Sean these questions and many more. Grab something cold to drink and join me for a conversation with Sean Raines. We'll talk about red flags to be aware of before hiring a vendor. We'll chat a little bit about being good stewards of our clients' data. And I'll ask Sean about his collaboration with Greg Gifford, which is more famously known as the beard and the hair. Sean Raines, welcome to Southern Search. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the invite. It's great to have you on. It's great to have you on. I am obviously have a different background. I'm in Dallas right now, so I'm borrowing Greg Gifford's office for the day, and I'm going to mess with all his toys because tomorrow is April Fool's. But uh, I know you and Greg go back a long way, and he, before the show, we had like kind of a show prep, and he was very persistent that I start this interview with a question for you about Hot Wheels. Is what on earth is he talking about? Do you have a story that has to do with Hot Wheels or something like this? I do have a story that has to do with Hot Wheels and the car business. A true story. Uh, and yeah, it has, boy, it's traveled many miles and it's still worth uh, the same high value as it was the, the first day I ever shared it with anybody. So I'll try to give you the short version. When all this digital, the internet realm uh, really kind of unfolded, uh, late 90s, especially in the automotive industry, you know how people say right place, right time. And I got picked up by a company that was just getting started with all that. And I talked to a lot of car dealers in 1999 and 2000 and 2001 that every time I talked to them about internet, lead generation, whatever it was, they would say, they would ask the, the same question. Have you ever sold a car in your life? That's what everybody would, because they wanted to level the playing field and make me be like, you don't know what you're talking about. So fast forward a few years, I was working for Reynolds and Reynolds. And at the time you couldn't work for another company and keep your job with them. But I didn't tell them that I found a Chevrolet dealership in Virginia where I was working for them that let me sell cars for them nights and weekends and nights and weekends. I happened to notice after doing this for a few weeks that kids obviously were out of school. They would come into the dealership with their kids. Uh, with their parents. And I just had this idea, you know what, I'm going to start buying Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars when I'm at Walmart or Target. And when somebody comes in with their kid, I'm not going to talk to the parent first. I'm going right up to the kid. I'm giving them a Hot Wheel. And I'm going to say, I don't know if your mom and dad are going to get a new car tonight, but you are. And if you have any questions while you're here, my name's Mr. Sean. Maybe they'll let you have a bag of popcorn from that machine over in the corner. Uh, it was my way of doing something that let people know that I care about them and it helps lower sales tension. And so while I was getting the experience, you know, I, I didn't make a lot of money selling cars. I wasn't there. I almost, I think I split every deal I ever sold. Um, but it was, it was for the experience of what I could learn. And that probably was the, one of the biggest things that informed me to, to believe what I still believe about the car business today and that it's still a people business. And I think that actually even plays into why things like digital retailing, although it became very popular in the last two years, is still really a more advanced way of still getting the same outcome, which is you're getting a lead and an opportunity to sell a car. But there's still a people connection component of that that a lot of those tools are, are still kind of lacking. All right. So Hot Wheels, I love this. And so yeah, Hot Wheels. Let, let's 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 keep going then. So you're you've you've had a long career in automotive and for our audience's sake and for my sake, kind of take us through that whole journey. You you now own your own your own shop. Um, what's led you, you know, throughout this whole professional journey? You've worked with automotive dealerships the whole way. What what have you been up to? Wow, uh, I I tell people all the time because it sounds like a joke, but it's also true. Uh, I got into the car business because I fell in love, and in my case, I fell in love with 
the woman that I'm still married to to this day. So we're 30 years in. We were very young when we got married. Um, 20, we both, I think, just turned 20. Everyone was like, that's a terrible idea. But so far, it's working. But yeah, we were both at the same junior college. Uh, I was there in, in a music program. I still love music to this day. Uh, I've been a drummer and a singer, and I play the piano a little bit and uh, love music. So we met uh, there, and I didn't want to move back home because although it was a JUCO, it was about three hours from um, my hometown. So I found uh, a room to rent and got a job in a parts warehouse. So. I was slightly mechanically inclined because I grew up riding motorbikes and my older brother was, you know, very, very handy. And my grandfather was very handy, but I didn't really know the anatomy of a car that well. Working at a parts warehouse uh, and with that company for 10 years, uh, I absolutely understood why a service advisor would advise me uh, to buy a new timing belt when my water pump was being replaced because it was leaking. Before that, I didn't understand that, well, we're already taking it off the car. So the labor's being done. All you got to do is decide if you want to pay $60 to put a brand new one of that on. Those types of things gave me a, you know, a, an anatomy of the vehicle yeah. knowledge that has been beneficial to me since that time. And oh, I love that. That company, um, called WorldPack. They're still out there. At the time I got hired by them, they were called Impact, and then they were acquired by the Friedkin companies and merged with another similar supplier. They were buying from the manufacturers of the water pump, the spark plug, the wheel bearing, the brake rotors, from the actual original manufacturers that supplied the OEMs, but they would go overseas, wherever that part was made, Germany, Japan, elsewhere, and they would, if they didn't have, if that manufacturer didn't have an aftermarket uh, channel, they would help them develop one. And they would be a huge buyer of those parts. And then they would go, and yes, they would sell to some dealers uh, because they were basically selling the same part. But they went to a lot of these more independent, nowadays we'd call them kind of boutique shops that just specialize on BMW repair or uh, Acura repair. And so I got to learn the logistics of warehousing. That's where I started, you know, planning delivery routes of same day deliveries. Uh, and then I was kind of groomed for sales in that same company. Again, I was there for 10 years and this is before all the internet stuff. So I've been in it a minute and I'm, I say this all, Greg's heard me say this before. Um, but now more than ever, I feel like Yoda, not Luke. Back then, I kind of yeah. felt like Luke. You know, you're just getting all the training right. and you're trudging through the swamps to figure out how you can, you know, be the savior someday. But now I kind of feel like, well, I've got a lot of wisdom. I hopefully I'm able to share it in a lot of ways. But yeah, that so that's what literally got me on the pathway. Fell in love with the girl, automotive parts warehouse. And then um, I met somebody that said, hey, have you ever heard of uh, CarPoint? I'm like, no. Well, that's Microsoft's new um, lead that they're generating for dealers through the MSN portal. And there's, I was living in Seattle, as I'm originally from the Northwest, and I got a job with the, with the team that had launched Microsoft's CarPoint lead generation service, which was in the early stages. I believe Auto Bytel was out there, Stone Age, some of the very early lead providers, but Microsoft's CarPoint lead, uh, because it had the MSN brand on it, was something a little different. And I got to be involved in a team that not only sold that to dealers, but set that up with dealers and then taught the sales process in the very, very early days of how do we take care of this new internet customer. So I feel like as a person who, I wasn't necessarily looking for the pioneer wagons to jump in, I was looking for opportunity and I was interested by new stuff and you couldn't go anywhere and learn that because it was happening in front of us. And I got to be one of the people involved with some really smart people, people who are still friends of mine to this day. And that's what kind of launched me into the whole digital thing. And the rest is kind of history. So nothing's really kind of come down the path that I haven't, I, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in everything, but I'm pretty familiar with just about everything that a dealership or most businesses should probably consider if they're looking to be successful with, with digital. Fascinating. I mean, like you, you, you've worked for 
different kinds of businesses. You've been a car in the car industry for a very long time. You wouldn't work for one of the biggest companies in the whole world, Microsoft, but you're on kind of like the, the frontier of a new product they're offering. Now you have your own business. You hung, you hung out a shingle, I think is the phrase, uh, and you got to have QuickBooks and contracts and lawyers and everything else. Uh, how is business owner life treating you? Uh, you know what? It's been really good, actually. Um, and, you know, I, I, I probably would have, actually, I would say I am not even in a position today where if the right opportunity, the right people, uh, the, the need, uh, the problem they're solving, that I wouldn't be interested in going and being part of something bigger than what I've done. So I can tell you one thing, business has been great. It, I literally have built a business that's primarily around lifestyle, right? Not so that I can have all this extra time because I don't, I'm like working all the time. Um, not as much time for leisure. Uh, that is definitely a sacrifice that you make. Uh, but uh, I, I was really kind of, I've, I've done it more than one time. I did it the first time when I was, you know, when I left Reynolds and I was trying to figure that out. And I wasn't good at it. I didn't have the self-discipline that's required to be successful as a remote employee, even if you work for yourself. I think a lot of people in this day and age have figured out in the last two years that they're either good or somewhat good or maybe terrible at uh, the self-discipline required to be successful from home. The ones that figure that out are probably more productive than they've ever been because of that. But um, that said, being a business owner now was really a... Um, it was really tied to how the last couple of bigger jobs um, uh, ended for me. And, you know, that, that's a whole other story. You probably know a little bit about that. But where Greg and I were both at the last time, I'm not going to say their name. But because everybody that knows him or me knows their name. Um, I hated how that ended. It should have never gone down that way. They should have never come after me like that. There were things going on in my life with my mom who... Uh, you know, I lost a couple of years ago, she had gotten cancer and there's a lot of different things going on personally that m has still made that something where I'm not going to let it poison me for the rest of my life because they certainly don't care anymore. They got what they wanted, which was keeping me from going someplace that I multiple times through attorneys tried to say, I'm, I don't want to compete against you. I don't hate you guys. I'm not leaving. I'm leaving because I, you know, your, your best spots at executive leadership in the company are taken and it, it would it would not be really right for me to say well there's something else for me to ask for it was just time for me to i'm growing beyond this and i think that was good for them but anyway that whole circumstance is uh one where i wasn't initially planning to go where somebody had recruited me and there was a private equity firm that had made an acquisition and they're like we got to get this guy and they literally made an offer that would have been life-changing for me. But after a few months of, you know, the back and forth, it didn't happen. And that's literally what almost forced me to open the doors of Dealer Superhero in a way that I would tell the world, like, this is what I'm going to do. Because I couldn't touch websites, paid search, SEO. I just I had to stay away from that part. I could still make a living in automotive if I so chose. But... I couldn't touch all the stuff that literally my whole career, at least the last couple decades, was built on. That said, long answer, sorry, but oh, Dealer yeah. Superhero then, instead of becoming um, a company that would, I wasn't going to offer really those services anyway, um, I chose to advise some dealers uh, that weren't even in automotive, RV dealers, power sports, and uh, that turned out to be a really smart move. But then I had a lot of mostly friends that have businesses that can't afford a VP of marketing. They're certainly they're not going to afford an executive at a marketing level and nor do they really need it. They have really, really small budgets, but they need some presence. Even if they're just having brand exposure that's hitting LinkedIn and Facebook on the regular, they needed something. And so I had enough of those requests of, can you help with this? Hey, could you build us a video asset? Could you do, could you be do some advocacy for us? Make a video for this of yourself saying, hey, you, that is literally what turned into more of the B2B opportunities. And I didn't have as much experience doing that, but it wasn't difficult for me to transi transition into a mindset of how do I help these businesses reach their target audience the same way that I would help 
you know, a franchise independent dealer, power sports dealer reach their market. And, and that's almost the rest is history. It's kind of that I have a little bit of a blend where I have a handful of dealers that I help. And mostly I'm the Batman to their Gotham and Gotham is all their vendor mix. Right. So when it's dealer superhero, what's that mean? It's, you know, show me what you're investing in and what you're expecting from those investments. I'm not the guy that the dealers hire to come in and blast out all their vendors so that I can put mine in because I'm in referral agreements with all of them. I don't do that, but I do come to a dealership and say, I'll just tell you the truth. I'll be honest with you. How are you going to fix it? I'll probably recommend the people and the businesses that I know that I put my name behind and every one of those businesses, I tell them, do not compromise that for me because my brand and my reputation is tied to being you know, honest and giving people really great um, insight and recommendations. And that's kind of, that's what I'm doing even today. Man, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a, <laughs> yeah, lot, about, a lot about like ethics and how to run a good business and how to be a good person, I think. And so I, it's hard to, tra- hard to segue from there. Um, you don't hear I'm going to do my best. I mean, I, I do really want to spend a lot of this conversation talking about vendor accountability and, and what that means and being a good steward of your client's money and mm-hmm. search lab full, full transparency we we work with a, a ton of automotive dealerships and that's that's what i think you know in theory any vendor should look at a, a car dealer which is just a small business realize that every dollar counts mm-hmm. and that they should be really good stewards of that of that as i said that's that's in theory in practice what do you find, Sean? What, what, what are auto dealers up against? What, what are you finding when you kind of lift the hood and take a look at their marketing programs? Big, big question. I mean, to some people, you know, watching this, and that's not a bit, that's an easy one. Um, <laughs> not all these questions are easy for me because it makes me think of about a billion things at once. Um, I think dealers have for a long time struggled with the fact that the technology has moved faster than their ability to understand it and more importantly to understand where it's going to make a difference or even if it's going to make a difference for them because you can go to a conference and you can listen to i'll use you know our mutual friend and uh you know producer extraordinaire uh, greg greg has probably the most um entertaining and I'm a pretty entertaining uh, presenter as well but he and I I thought we really sharpened each other really well at dealer on I was really glad for that time not only for us to become better friends but um, he has a brilliant way of taking these themes and and packing them full of so much content that you can be a dealer in that and realize this is awesome and you the knowing side of your brain is gonna peak like you'll probably fill it to whatever its capacity is but the doing of that is where mm, now what? And that's not to say that you know you know Greg gives them great knowledge and then they don't do it. it. They still have the responsibility on their side to figure out what are you going to do with all that you just learned from Greg Gifford in the last hour, or maybe he did a two-hour, two-part series, right? If somebody comes to see you speak, and maybe they're you maybe you're not talking about the organic side of search, but maybe you're running somebody through. Uh, vehicle listing ads now called vehicle ads, right? Maybe you're like, well, you, you know, you have to have a feed for that and who's going to handle that? Or um, maybe somebody asks you about performance max, right? And there's so much automation relied. Those are all things that are just dropped a couple of more current things within the Google ad uh, platform that a dealer can go and listen to somebody. They can watch it online. They can accumulate the knowledge, but they don't know if switching their traditional PPC into performance max is a good idea or not. They don't know the detail of, well, how does performance max work with a display ad or something that's going over to YouTube or so on and so on. There's just the devils in the details, as they always say. So I have found that the most successful dealers, the ones that kind of get it and then they see the results from it they've invested in the doing side of it whether they've figured out who they need to hire internally to pull it off or they realize that well you might have heard somebody and you got past the fact that well it was kind of a pitch well actually maybe it was their way of giving you education but also saying we can help you if you need it and that's always been a gray area i think in all industries but the the successful ones end up being really good at doing whatever they need to do to vet 
where they got the information, and if that information source is also part of the solution, meaning you can hire them, uh, then pull the trigger on it. And so I think a lot of the breakdown, successful dealers are the ones that realize, okay, this is great knowledge, but it doesn't apply to us, right? We're selling Subarus, we're not selling Chevys, right? And I just listened to a presentation that is amazing, but I can't speak Chevrolet to my Subaru dealers because my Subaru dealer is second highest educated to a BMW buyer, at least used to be. Those are the intricacies about our industry that, you know, uh, if the dealer has hired an, a brand new, hate to put down somebody that's in the millennial generation, but there's a lot of younger blood that we need and I'm a big fan of bringing it in, but those people can't be resistant to, wow, that's all the old way because a lot of the uh, information that was, will help that better decision making is really the combination of the younger blood seeing things and understanding things from a perspective of capability, but that older generation understanding, well, is it necessary for the type of business we're in? Got it, got it, got it. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, I really, I saw and I listened to you at the beginning of my question, and it seemed like it, it struck a nerve a little bit. Mm -hmm. I wonder in all your years of, of doing this, have you had any like horror stories? You talked a lot about auto dealers. I think that's a really great answer, by the way. Um, have you had an experience or could you share with our, our audience any like horror stories, anything where you, you, you started to look at a vendor and you went, oh my gosh, this is so unethical or so downright, you know, unscrupulous that I, I can't believe it. Uh, I'll, I'll refrain from tarnishing my <laughs> likability. <laughs> which I try to be peaked all the time by naming names. Um, right, right. And, I, and I know that the automotive industry is not um, a solo performer in this regard, but there are certainly no, uh, people in it now, and there are people that have been in it, that some of whom started as, you know, you know, Jedi masters of knowledge, and, uh, and then they, they get compromised. People get compromised all the time. It happens uh, in every facet of our life. Um, whether you're the Hillsong Church and you're on Discovery Plus having a three, like I just watched that the other night. And I was like, oh my goodness. Um, whether you're government, whether you're in some industry and you're corporate America, and the compromise that happens is where you know you'll typically find the horror stories. Sometimes it's individuals, and so. Let me try to think of an example that's kind of specific without naming a name. There was somebody who was significant to me as a mentor, as a really young guy in the game that I really looked up to and I learned a lot from him and really um, what this person was an advocate for me when nobody really knew me and I wanted to start speaking and a lot of those um, days were, I mean, I can't have anything but respect and appreciation for but fast forward to at a conference and being invited to kind of an after party event and then seeing uh, and hearing the conversations and then seeing the behavior of somebody, it wrecked, it literally wrecked everything. It was, you know, 15 years of building a trust and an appreciation and a respect and just, you know, you just love somebody so much for what they represent. And then, you know, it doesn't matter when the lights are on and everybody can see what you're doing. It matters when they're off. <laughs> right. And you know, it, it, uh, I mean, we could use that to, to talk about even some recent events of people who have built so much positive equity and who they are and their brand and what they're about. And they kill it in, you know, um, a very short period of uncontrolled emotion. Uh, but so I've had that happen with individuals, not just one, T total horror story and I've also had that happen and I see that still happen today with businesses that sometimes uh, I don't, don't always know who it is but somebody comes up with they create a problem so that they their solution fixes a problem but the problem may not actually exist in a car dealership or in every car dealership so the entire premise of like what it is that we do is built on making people believe that they need something or something about what they do is broken or incomplete. And now you sell something to somebody. And I'm not going to get into the specifics, although I probably should, of some things within uh, digital advertising. But we have had things that have come down the path even in the last, call it, less than 10 years, where it was like everybody needs to jump on this or we're going to do this. Um, 
uh, I'll give you a slightly detail. I'm not against being able to geofence places where you're going to, but that was one thing that came on so hot and heavy for so long. And the right. way that that was sold initially into the automotive industry was right. lazy, irresponsible, it was wrong, and it was selling people on expectations that literally were derivative from industries that were like selling shoes, right? Are you right. going to get showroomed and all these things? So if we can come up with a buzzword and then bend it, break it, and smash it into a million pieces of glass and then scare everybody that if you don't fix this, that you're going to have these similar problems. That happens a lot. And there are companies that are no longer in business that that was, you know, we're going to be pushing that type of uh, thing. I'm never a fan of that. And so there are some of those horror stories. For me personally, I, I don't have a whole lot of horror stories that I was... Uh, tied to. I can't really actually think of one, but I, I I seem to watch a lot of them play out in front of me. Amazing. Amazing. Well, it's, it's interesting. I didn't know the conversation was going to go in this way, but kind of a common thread since from your from your beginnings to this story to vendor accountability writ large is, is the concept of ethics and, and trying to do the right thing. And one of the things I can think about is for us, a lot of times we are the data, we own the data for our clients. So we are the person who can interpret it we collect it, we set it up, the conversion stuff is us, uh, tag manager is us, and that may be different than if you were with a really big business, but that's that's kind of how it works. The SEO and the PBC team tend to be your data people. You know, it, you can you can use that to, to motivate and to explain and to do things for the auto dealer. You can also use that to obfuscate and to get yourself off the hook and to manipulate. Mm -hmm. um, what I, I wonder if, if, if you have, uh, this is another one of those open-ended questions, Sean, but I wonder if you have some core ethical ideas of how data should be used by a digital marketer and, and what we owe to our clients in terms of being the stewards of their data. That's a great question. Uh, I, I won't take credit for, for this, and I don't know if he would either, but the first person I ever heard say this is Dennis Galbraith, who is a long time friend who is in the car business for a long time now. I think he's over at Expedia, love Dennis. But he said, you can torture the data until it confesses. Exactly, I have heard <laughs> right? that. Yeah. And what, I'm sure he got that from somewhere, but that is an absolute truth about SEO, about paid search, really about everything digital, paid or organic. You can torture data until it confesses. So uh, on one side, I, I think there is a space. I think there's a space for using data to get someone's attention so that you can buy two more minutes of their attention so that you get the 20 minutes maybe necessary for them to understand uh, why what you have may be very helpful for them. And you may use data that's not specifically going to help them, but it may be a point. So. I'm okay with a little bit of the gray area if what you're doing with it goes to value, right? That you really care about that. When it's all said and done, businesses, they're like the most important thing to them are their customers, right? They literally put their trust in you by the relationship and rapport you build with them, but probably most importantly, they put their trust in you with their dollars, right? their financial investment is saying, I believe what you've told me and I believe in the team that you have, your capabilities, and I believe that your solution is to a problem that I have and I wanna see it solved. So I'm okay with a little bit of the gray area if it's used in a way that helps facilitate, this is the right conversation so that somebody understands something that isn't simple, right? We're not selling flowers, we're selling digital technology. It's a complex sale more than it is a simple one. So I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with uh, being really ambiguous or extremely vague and putting it on the customer. This company isn't um, in business anymore, but it used to be there was a paid search company that um, they, uh, when they first started, they were doing this. They, they didn't build their own platform. I spent a little over three years as the director of Reach Locals Automotive Division. At the time I was there, like I think dealer.com was actually still our largest channel partner before they had started to offer their own paid search um, off of their platform. That said, um, when, when you're trying to build a platform for paid search um, or digital, there were all of these, and I'm sure you're familiar with them, and I'm not saying anything disparaging about these solutions like Kenshu, Aquizio, Marin, those big uh, software platforms, because in essence, you know, double click, but Reach Local had done that really. They kind of had their own. They invested a lot of money to have the platform that they have even to this day. 
But the ones that were built for agencies to white label and kind of do their thing, there was one in particular, there were more than a few, but there was one in particular that a lot of the way that they went to the customer around the data conversation was, yeah, we have all this data and all this is great. What's most important to you, Mark? Like, what do you want to see from the, what results are you looking for? And usually a dealer, when you're talking about those things, you know, as a salesperson, because I've been on the sales side of it, just as I've been on the marketing and I know how to set myself up for a win, right? I try to be more of a challenger salesperson and lead people to the solution as opposed to leading with it. But there are a lot of these conversations that have happened in the last couple of decades around digital that sounds something like, oh, what would you like to see? And the dealer's like, I, I don't know. You're you're the expert. What should right. we be? And and so then you make a suggestion. Well, do you do you need more traffic? Right? You just start at the basics. Do you need more traffic? Well, I think so, yeah. Not how are you doing with your current level of traffic? Not right. how much traffic do you have today? And and once it's segmented, how much of it are you paying for? How much of it is organic? How, how well are you doing through rever referral traffic? And then how do all of your broken down segments of traffic, how do they all perform from a conversion standpoint, right? How do they all perform in driving a, a lead? And what's the cost per that lead from all this? So when you start to break that all down into the points of data, if you are walking a client, potential client, in this case, car dealers, through a conversation when you know that they don't understand the depths like you do, right? Where all the fish are creepy because you're comfortable being at the bottom of the ocean. That's how deep you go. And the dealer's like, I'm wearing my floaties up here, man. Make it easy for me. I have a big problem with that, the usage of data like that, where you're like, okay, well then, if you could get a cost per lead driven through paid search that was, you know, less than $50 cost per lead, would that be uh, good for you? And the dealer's like, I, I don't know, it sounds kind of high. I don't know. Well, um, do you know how many leads you get from Auto Trader? And then they do the math on should the value of an Auto Trader form submission be the same as the value of a form submission driven through paid search? in a form filled out on your dealership website, right? Breaking all that stuff down rarely happens, even with all the information we have, and it can happen, right? That's when I say, if you use a little bit of the fuzzy data or a little bit of a gray area, because I got your attention, and I, if I can, it's on me to keep your attention so that I can explain there is a difference between the value of the lead that was generated from a third party source that's dependent on your inventory feed for, or they have nothing to show their visitors and the person that you could drive one-to-one -one through say a vehicle listing ad i'm bypassing truecarcars.com auto trader not that i don't I, I have nothing against any of them but now that i can have a vehicle ad and search labs or whomever i buy it from just said hey we've got this platform you should jump in on it because now you're competing with the very companies that google did the beta testing with for it carvana carmax uh, that is to me as a dealer i'm like okay right that's how I like to take data points and help somebody understand it. But unfortunately, that's uh, um, abused in a lot of ways because the, uh, you know, the irresponsible companies or salespeople know when and where and who they can take advantage of by torturing the data until it says what they want it to. I love it. I love it. And I do love that quote. And Challenger Sales, one of my favorite books. So I, I love everything about this. But you know, I want to unpack that a little more if I could. So you, you mentioned a few things that we talked about some bad vendors, like what they do, act unethically, unscrupulous, use the data to confuse. Uh, you mentioned good vendors. They use their expertise to guide a prospect through a, a cycle. I, I want to unpack that a little more if we could. Can you, could you tell me some other things that you see the, the good vendors doing? What are the savvy vendors doing that are, that are really helping uh above and beyond just like, ah, oh, we're running ads. We're just, we, we got your ads, it's up. You got some conversions, you got some data, here's a report, uh, mosey along. You interact with a lot of vendors. What are the top, the top vendors doing to really help their auto dealer clients? Uh, one is the rapport building, literally. Uh, it's okay to be friendly. You don't have to be best friends, but to be, if you work with a company that opens the door to friendship, uh, what are the attributes of uh, somebody who's your friend? Trust, right? I'm going to tell my friend something. Well, I'm certainly not telling them if I can't trust them. And are they my friend? So uh, I, I love the association of 
you know, Tim Sanders wrote a book called The Likeability Factor several years ago. The first app he, or the first book he wrote was called Love is the Killer App. It was all about kind of networking between individuals, between businesses. The good companies in this uh, equation, the question you're asking, they build those relationships, right? And they keep the door open as much as they possibly can, and they're accessible. And what they're what they're putting out there isn't just, well, hey, buy our stuff, we solve your problem. They're also doing things not to to, to uh, you know toot your horn here, but doing something like suds and search. Uh, companies that are constantly looking for uh, ways to develop an ebook, give stuff away for free. Companies that are looking for really good blog content some that maybe came right out of their own bullpen from their own people some might be oh look at what search engine land put, posted on xyz right um i was reading a thing from i think it was joanne hawkins who had posted something recently about um google's ability within to do a, a title meta description titles just fresh it was like this something that i think she tweeted today um, and I made a marker on it. I'm like, I gotta go back and read that because she's basically saying, hey, Google's own stuff, if you wanna use that for uh, positive SEO meta description, it's not always awesome, but it's pretty good. Companies that take that and share that with the world, are that's open door. And so they're educating and now what happens? And I will tell you that there are people that love people at your company because they've done that and they become loyal. And there's a group here in Texas and there's a guy that runs it, that uh, Bill Milburn in Huffines. Um, I've known Bill for a long, long time. And uh, Bill knows me, he knows Greg. He's a super fan of Greg and I, has been for a long time. Not because Greg and I have done, you know, goofy, funny videos and Greg's a super Star Wars fan. And I am I love Star Wars, but I'm not as, as cool on the Star Wars front. I love it. but. Um, that's not the reason why a Bill Milburn connects to uh, and did connect to to Greg and I. He did that because we were constantly putting stuff out that yes, the 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 broadcast might be really really on point for somebody who's close to our age group. Maybe they like Star Wars and heavy metal and whatever and beer. Maybe they don't. Doesn't matter. It was a really broad way for us to touch multiple generations with good quality content. They felt connected to us. We personalized that company while we were there, right? It was a known company, but it wasn't like, I feel like I know these guys. And now you see us at events and now you're going, coming to our presentations. So the successful dealers are ones that are literally creating a, a great customer experience, but how? Because people talk about customer experience and we're willing to pay more for a good one, all that. It's all true, but then no one else says, okay, so how are you going to provide a better customer experience? And in this case of vendors, if it's me telling a vendor, how are you going to provide a better customer experience and you're selling stuff to car dealers, make sure that you've invested in the right people and make sure that you rest invest in the right technology. And then more importantly, that you actually don't fake caring because caring takes time. And if you don't have the time to put in, everyone will know that you're fake. And that's the worst thing that could happen to you. So you open the network to personalize yourself, give access, make people feel familiar with you, and then put out lots of education. It's almost like put out as much informative, helpful content as you make statements about how awesome you are. I love it. I love it. Um, all right, I have, I have just some quick hits here. To wrap up, hopefully we'll see. We'll see what we can do here. But uh, I'm almost like contractually obligated. I feel like at this point, anytime I have somebody in the auto industry to ask them about the chip shortage, a lot of what you're talking about, I think, is empathy. Like having empathy for the, for the person. If you're if you're serving a client, uh, they're they're valuing you. There's a trust in there. You mentioned the trust that is is uh, under underlying or codified by dollars. Um, I'm wondering. How are people having a conversation with their their dealerships now? The data is a is a skew. You know, like we've got we've got a chip shortage. It's it's weird. The data is going to tell you weird things right now. Um, yeah. We we've had a crazy year here in auto. What tips and advice do you have for having that sort of conversation with a client during these chaotic times? The chip shortage remains a problem. Obviously, everybody knows it. Um, I I don't. Um, 
personally, I don't dig deep on what's going on in Taiwan every day to know exactly what's, how many do you have on the shelf right now? And you when are we going to four forwards? Yeah. Um, part of that, I had to make the conscious choice of everything political. This is a tiny sidebar. Everything that's happened in the last couple of years, really since the uh, 2020 election, everything got super polarized. And I used to be really, really good at um, whether it's chip shortage conversations that oftentimes then you, you can't help but talk about uh, the political side of how things are running and implications of, you know, what's happening in world economies and all that. There's just, there's a lot of that. I have been spending less time on that knowing that, well, there's a whole bunch of it I have zero control over. And I don't want it to affect uh, all these relationships and friendships that I have with people that, quite honestly, I disagree with in, in so many areas. But all the ones that really matter, I don't disagree with at all, right? All the things that are most important. Most of us find the middle if we're looking for it. And I don't want to be one of those people that keeps trying to find the far edges because those groups have grown way too big over the last couple of years. And if we're not there, we're dangerously close to being at a point where it's like, can we even help each other, you know, personally, but also in business. So that's a, that's an aside. Um, I think the chip shortage will continue to be a problem. It seems like that's going to be, uh, unfortunately something that lingers easily into 2023 and the dealers that I talk to, um, on a regular basis that are affected by it. And it's not just car dealers. This affects power sports, people selling motorcycles and side-by-sides and ATVs. This affects RV dealers. I have RV dealer clients. Um, overland gear, I've got an overland gear client. Um, so this topic comes up a lot about supply chain disruption. And I have, uh, I've tried to advocate with car dealers specifically. I have tried to tell them, please, um, instead of, uh, killing all of your, uh, marketing budget because you don't have enough cars to sell, you certainly have enough cars to service. And if you're not doing that, you're missing out on the opportunity um, to make sure that you're providing that great customer service where somebody would rather have their eyes spooned out of their head than do business with anybody but you. You have to earn that, right? People's loyalty these days, it doesn't come with just, hey, you were nice to me. No, you have to go over, above, and beyond to get that. So I tell dealers now, don't be uh, of the pessimistic, which is lazy thinking mindset when it comes to, oh, I can't change this. I'm not going to, I'm only going to get six or seven or 10 new cars to sell. And all of them are going to be spoken for. Great. Every dealer that I talk to are like, well, we've had the best years we've had in the last two years, selling everything we have and we're more profitable than we've ever been. And I say a couple things to that one, while that is true, and I'm hearing a lot of people say this now, but I've been saying this for months. I said this literally because I had to buy a new to me truck. I usually don't buy a brand new car, but I bought a Tundra to replace my old Tundra that had about 25,000 miles on it. Local dealership, Toyota dealership here in Dallas. Great experience because I know the market and kind of knew how to talk to these guys. I didn't get taken, but I had a conversation with them and I said, I don't, you're not a client of mine, but I'm going to tell you one thing. If you're not already thinking this, all of the leverage that you possess today could literally be um, used against you in devastating fashion if you're not careful because you might not care what people are saying about you and well the whole reputation online reputation thing that was a topic of years ago oh no it's it's still there now and even for the people that are not going to go online and try to you know digitally or online review warn other people about your business word of mouth still travels really, really fast, right? And that sentiment, unfortunately, it's a weed. And if you let it stay there, it just grows out of control. So I tell dealers, be careful of that because you're in a great position. It doesn't feel like a great position, but when you have that position of leverage where there is no negotiation, it is what it is. I only have a green one, sorry. Um, Okay, take that for what it's worth right now, but do not change your ethics. Do not change how much you need to care for your customers. That might mean that you don't have to make all the extra dollars above and beyond, right? That's a tough choice to make, but are we playing the short game with your dealership? Are we playing the, I wanna have that story that one day when I'm six feet under, there's somebody saying, those guys have been around for a hundred years because they treat people awesome, right? Right. When we had cash for clunkers and 08, 09 crisis, they were awesome. They were really good to us. 
when we had the chip shortage and COVID and shutdowns and depression galore and all that, they were good to us. We understood that takes time. When I go back to the, how do you differentiate who you are and your brand? One of them is by caring, but caring is one of the attributes of being differentiated that you can't fake, right? So I would say one, just take care of that piece. The other part I would say is don't zero out all your budgets, spend them in the places where you have a greater need than you've ever had before. We need to get as many used cars as we possibly can. Yes, you do, Mr. or Miss Dealer. How are you gonna do it? Uh, I don't know. Well, how about you tell your paid search provider that you'd like to start running campaigns that say, we want your trade, we'll pay higher for your trade, or sell us your car, or you know anything like that. Because there are providers out there, one of my clients offers a tool that is a trade-in tool, immediately increases conversion on the website because it's a way better experience than a form. But that tool also can be used as a sell us your car tool. Really super handy tool. And it's super cheap. It's like, for me, it's like, why, what dealer wouldn't use that tool? Because it's better than what comes uh, inherently on the website. But when you have tools like that in place and dealers oftentimes don't utilize them the way they should, I'm telling dealers, make sure that you're being very strategic and smart about the areas of your business that you do really need to care for in ways that you never have before. The trade-in and what you're doing there, acquiring vehicles, whether it's from private parties or people, 60 to 70% of people have a trade every time they're gonna buy a car. But not every dealer has a process built in to make sure that we're gonna get as many of those as we possibly can. Well, nowadays, you really can't afford to be lazy in that regard. So those are probably two of the big areas right now that I would say, yeah, the market conditions you know, can be tough but it doesn't mean that it's all over. And I, one other thing I'll tag onto that is, um, is parts, accessories, um, all the stuff that's laying around your dealership. That happens to be another business that, that I'm involved with that I have ownership in. Um, so I have a couple of businesses um, and that particular business is all about the dealer, really any business, because we have people selling snowboards and coffee and all kinds of stuff. But if you have a physical product in your store, if you've got t-shirts and mugs and logos and all that kind of stuff and you have no e-commerce presence you know you didn't figure out like i could do shopify by myself um if you need help with that and there are a lot of businesses like that you you need to make sure that you have figured out a way to turn that into a profit center um you've got companies out there now that are helping that but it's moving the the number in wholesale a little more than it is retail and if you can go to a dealer or if a dealer catches on and they don't need any incentive and they realize we've got all of this retail opportunity to sell parts before they go obsolete or some dealers that write off their obsolete parts but never do anything with them they're just laying around the dealership you know this because you guys you know are familiar with shopping ads if you have a pim or a way to take that stuff build a feed and put it out there into a google ad and then they turn on the smart shopping component and within five or so days it's literally found this obscure parts person who's mostly interested in it and it costs you five cents to get the click that exists today and there's just not enough people talking about that either so i can't, I can't believe the, the the value of those things well sean i could do this all day this is this has been this has gone by so fast that the main thing i've got to get to everyone's favorite part of the show this is where greg gifford gives me a question for the guest but he gives me no context so neither you or me know exactly what's going to happen here I'll drink to that. For Sean Rains, he has the beard and the hair. Does this ring a bell to you? What is this about? The beard and the hair. Um, now it's kind of like the beard and the beard, but I do still have some. I do still have some hair. Yeah, and, uh, um, when we were doing Wednesday workshops at uh, this previous company that shall remain unnamed. <laughs> That was uh, Greg continuing something that he had already started. So he started doing, I think, Tip Tuesdays or something like that. So then it became a Wednesday workshop. And, you know, Greg, I would, I don't know, he would probably, I think he would agree with this. I would say it was probably 70 or 80%. You know, he was kind of like, hey, this would be the topic. And sometimes he'd be like, hey, could you write something up? I like this idea. And then maybe it was more than 20%, but it felt like it was 20, 30% of the stuff I'd, hey, hey, I got an idea and let's do something paid search. Um, but in the process of that, we, we stumbled into some things, one of which was the beard and the hair. And it was literally, um, unplanned, unscripted. We weren't trying to start this beard and the hair thing. 
I wasn't wearing hats a lot back then. I was, you know, my hair was kind of up, spiky, you know, not, you know, not looking like the old guy that I am. I was trying to look like punk rock or something. And I just said, like, you know, welcome back to another episode with the beard and the hair. And we kept it in the cut. And then I want to say it was Greg's wife, my wife, first were the first ones that when they were like, you guys got to keep that. And then everyone else said the exact same thing, like that those are your nicknames now you're the beard and the hair and so greg was big big bushy beard and i was the crazy hair and now since i have decided that i like to wear a beard too just not quite i can't do the big one like greg not, can. Not quite really that nice is where that came from yeah and we, we were actually last time i saw him just a couple weeks back we were uh we were actually skimming around some ideas about maybe we'll do something so and I think probably the place that we would shoot that from, from a distribution standpoint, would probably be right out of your company. But we may do something. Right, right out of here. I love it. I love it. And I, I, a little story about branding there, too. I like it. Um, yeah. He has one other one for you. No context. Greg question. One word. Concerts? Anything with concerts, Rainbow? Yeah, I, I, I do go to quite a few. I go to as many as I possibly can. I'm a, I'm a really big live music fan. Um, and I'll say this to everybody because there, as far as concerts go, there's one of a handful of things usually for people um, might more significantly inform them of how alive they feel. And I, people are like, you're how old and you want to go to what concerts? And I have been to all of the major hard rock slash punk and metal festivals in the United States, uh, Carolina Rebellion, Epicenter, um, Welcome to Rockville, uh, Louder Than Life, like all, and it's like, it's craziness. But I also love small shows with bands, concerts are huge, and Greg and I have actually gone to uh, a couple together that were unbelievably epic, and with plenty of delicious adult beverages, if I remember correctly, I think we were on Deep Eddy Orange vodka and soda at uh when gas monkey still had two live music venues here in dallas we went to uh mr big which you know everyone's all like you know know right they love that we were like billy sheen on the bass like we were just geeking paul gilbert on guitar because there were a few bands that came late 80s that had like masterful musicians that unless you really are you know geeky into them and we just absolutely had a ball at that show that was awesome so i love concerts period greg and i have gone to a couple we've gone to steel panther a couple times uh which is always a hoot um and uh, i wish greg would go to more concerts with me um usually he's you know probably traveling somewhere but yeah we're both big uh, concert fans and i have gone to so many but he and i have gone to a couple here in um in dfw and they've been a blast Awesome. Well, Sean, like I said, this has been a great conversation. I, I didn't know what direction this was going to go in, but I think it was really about trying to be a little bit more human in our marketing and trying to do better. And uh, if nothing else, you're a lot of fun to have a beer with. So let's let's do this in person sometime. And uh, for now, I'm going to sign off for everyone out there. We, we'll be back next week for, with another episode of Southern Search. Sean, I'm going to give you a virtual cheers. I'll see you around. Mm-hmm.